This week on Notorious Scoundrels Podcast. We always be measuring. Coffee is for pre-measurers. Welcome to the Notorious Scoundrels Podcast. Welcome everyone to the Notorious Scoundrels Podcast, where uh, Endless, that's myself, uh, joins Dashes and Archimedes from the Never Tell Me the Odds blog to talk about Star Wars Legion competitive play and improving your game. This week we're going to talk about Boba Fett, his impact on the game. We're going to talk about um, the meta, like what is a meta? Is there even a meta for this game? So we're going to define it and uh, break out some of the background on this concept. And we're also going to talk about Legion fundamentals um, in other kinds of competitive games, things that could be called mechanics, that is the physical act of playing. So those are things like measuring range, putting your units on the table in coherence, or um, activating your units in the correct order. So we're going to go through things like that. And if we have time, we're going to talk about uh, a subject that's created a little bit of strife recently in the community, which is key positions. One of the uh, five objectives you can take in your battle deck when you approach a game of Star Wars Legion. So those are some of the topics we're going to cover today. And of course, I'm joined by my uh, friends here. Dashes, say hello. Hey, everybody. How you doing? And Orchimedes. What's going on? And before I move on, I'd just like to plug my blog a little bit. They run a blog called Nowhere Channel of the Odds at swlegionodds.com. And I run my own little blog called YavinBase at yavinbase.wordpress.com. So let's hop into the topics. We're going to talk about Boba Fett, and we've got dashes here to get us started on that subject. Hey, guys. So uh, I'm just going to run through Boba Fett's uh, kind of signature abilities. Uh, he's, he's a new... Uh, addition to the game. He came out, uh, I guess, a couple weeks ago at this point. Um, so we're going to go ahead and take a look at his card. So Boba Fett has jump two, which means in contrast to Luke, who I believe has jump one, um, Boba Fett can jump up to height two or lower as opposed to one or lower. So um, he's got that going for him. He has arsenal two, which allows him to fire two weapons at a time, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, he's got a really new and neat keyword called bounty that allows him to select a hero on your opponent's side of the board. Um, and they get a token that if you kill that model with Boba specifically, like he deals the last wound to them and they die, you gain that, that token, you put it on Boba's card, and you gain an extra victory point if Boba is alive at the end of the game. Uh, he then has Impervious, which is uh, a weird rule that centers around Pierce and that it gives you a little bit more resistance to Pierce. Uh, it's not quite as good as Pierce Immune. In fact, it's, I think, considerably worse, but it is not, you know, you just get pierced out. Uh, he's also got Sharpshooter 2, and he surges on both of his dice. Uh, he's got three weapons, Boot Spikes and Melee, which is two red dice. He's got a Wrist Rocket at range one to two, which is two black dice imp with impact one. And he has his FET carbine at pierce one with two black dice at range one to three. Uh, he's got a really uh, awesome kit. Uh, he's very similar in style and play to Luke Skywalker on the rebel side and that he can kind of bounce around the board, shoot a unit there, shoot a unit there, cause some casualties. But he's also very... Um, he, he might have a red die defense save with a surge even. So it's uh, essentially as good as Luke or Vader with deflect. Uh, but he's only got five hit points and he's very vulnerable to uh, getting kind of just focused fired down if you put him in a vulnerable position. So uh, let's take a look at his command cards real quick here. Uh, he's got three of them. Uh, notably, all of them, even the ones that are higher than one pip, only give an order to Boba Fett. So we've got uh, Whipcord Launcher, uh, which gives Boba Fett a free, um, a free action on his turn. Uh, it immobilizes a, a target of his choosing at range one uh, and in line of sight. Uh, what it does is it gives them two immobilized tokens and two suppression tokens. And immobilized tokens uh, reduce that target's uh, movement by one step for each immobilized token they have. Um, so essentially, if you give two immobilized tokens to 
uh, a unit with a speed two move, they're reduced to a speed zero move and can't move anymore. Uh, and it also allows Boba Fett to retreat from an engagement if that unit that you've given those mobilized tokens to is in that engagement with him and he's not engaged with anyone else. Um, his next one is Flame Projector, which is a range one flamethrower with the blast and spray keywords. And the spray keyword gives you a red die per target. Um, that one gives you a weapon that can be used with Boba's arsenal keyword. So you can use his carbine along with the flame projector. You can use his wrist rocket along with the flame projector, or you can use his boot spikes along with the flame projector if you're in melee. Uh, so it gives you some kind of utility. The main important point here is that you cannot use the flame projector as a free action. It still counts as part of your normal attack, unlike the whipcord launcher. And his last command card is uh, Jetpack Rocket. Um, it's a range three to four blast and impact two, three red dice weapon. Um, it's very good for kind of snipering a target out, uh, specifically the bounty target. Uh, it's very good alongside Veers' maximum firepower. If you can maximum firepower Boba's bounty target on like turn one and then Z6 Jetpack Rocket it on turn two, you can very quickly eliminate a bounty target on the other side of the board. And if you throw that uh, carbine in there with it, you know, you got Pierce and like five dice at range three, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, I will say that um, getting getting the target when you play Jetpack Rocket into that range three band is super important. You don't want to be jet, just like Jetpack Rocketing something at range four uh, just for the fun of it unless you have to. Getting the combined attack pool of... Um, the three red dice and two black dice with Pierce one and blast. Uh, well, he's got a sharpshooter too, so that doesn't matter a ton. But um, just getting those dice all in one pool with the Pierce one is a really big deal. Uh, so I will say that uh, I, I think the best keyword on on Boba is probably probably jump two. Um, Luke has kind of been a menace on the rebel side of things for a while now. And Boba just kind of being able to jump all over the board and over walls and things like that has really created a new dynamic in Imperial lists and opened up some creative new strategies. I think we talked a little bit last week about the new Veers Boba list and uh, how it's kind of taken over um, some of the metas lately that we're going to talk about a little later in the podcast. Uh, I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. Um you know, so just briefly, jump two lets Boba ignore terrain height two or lower when he moves. So you can conduct one move where he just flat ignores this uh, height two terrain. And so he can basically, you know, go anywhere he likes. It can be except for height three. But, you know, there's so much terrain out there that's two or lower. So really, Boba has like very high freedom of movement. It makes him an excellent flanker. Um, he's also kind of fragile, like you mentioned. Um, or I think you had a favorite term, you know, he's like Luke Skywalker in that he's a, a scalpel and not a hammer. Uh, as we know, you know, as rebel players, we know that Luke, um, if he is put in pressure too early, like if he overextends, that means he just kind of runs forward and, and is going to get shot up by multiple enemy units. He'll die very quickly. And Boba kind of suffers from the same problem, I think. Yeah. He, uh, if, you know, for anyone that has played, 40k and played space marines um you know they got that three up save which is effectively the equivalent of a of a red with surge dice you know it feels awesome that you got so much pain on that die um but you're still failing saves you know one third of the time and uh you know when those dice betray you that five health pool looks uh, pretty small pretty quickly so you got to be careful that you know He's got jump too. He's super mobile, so you should be able to use cover and flank. Um, you definitely don't want to sort of get blinded by that red with surge defense die and just charge him right up the middle of the board because he will die. Yeah, he is far from far from impervious. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's that's also also another great keyword and something that people should consider when playing him is uh, doing the math on impervious correctly. Um, the way impervious works is for every um, point of pierce in your opponent's attack, you roll an additional defense die. So let's say you get shot by a Han blaster and it does two hits to you. 
Han's gun has pierce two, so you're going to roll four defense dice. And you, you still have to apply the pierce after you roll these additional defense dice. So if you roll, you know, your four dice and you get three saves, two of those saves are still going to get pierced away. But you did defend against one. Um, you, you still have a block result left to cancel a hit. So you're only going to take one wound instead of the two you'd otherwise always take from Han's blaster at that point. So it's like, uh, it basically just gives you a chance, another chance to mitigate a point of pierce doesn't make you immune. And, um, doing the math on that is, is really crucial to, to make sure that you still reapply pierce to your defense dice after the fact, just to be, um, well, fair to your opponent. But I mean, that's kind of a mistake I've seen people who are, you know, using Boba Fett and who are sort of newer at the game, they do that often where they kind of don't really understand how impervious works. And that's that's basically how it works. You're trying to overroll your opponent's attack pool to essentially use two block results to cancel a hit instead of just one. Yeah, and, and just to follow up on that, I've had some confusion in the other direction regarding impervious. I think it's kind of a really confusing keyword altogether. Um, but like, so if your opponent has pierce two and they've, and they're rolling against you. Let's say that they had two hits, right? So mm-hmm. you've got the two defense dice for the normal hits. You've got two defense dice for Pierce two. If they're all blank, you still only take two hits. Um, I've been finding that a lot of people, specifically when you're like firing at somebody, get like very confused about that. I'm not sure why, uh, but just you know, make sure that you're taking hits from the number of hits that are rolled, not the number of things that are not. Not saves. Right. You have to compare. You have to compare results and uh, actually take damage equal to the number of uncanceled hits and crits and not just take damage according to the number of blanks that are present on the defense size. Yeah. And um, so if you look at it, like how effective it is mathematically, the, the shorthand way is basically it's it's two thirds as effective as Pierce immunity. Um, what makes it interesting is obviously he's always rolling that surge, whereas, uh, our, our Pierce immune friends, Luke and Vader, um, are not always rolling that surge. So I actually ran the numbers on this and it's at least with Luke's lightsaber, which is Pierce two. Um, and I would assume this goes for any Pierce two weapon mathematically, uh, attacking Baba with Luke's lightsaber is the same as attacking, um, you know, a non-deflect Luke or Vader. So uh, the impervious keyword, you know, the difference between impervious and pierce immunity essentially exactly makes up the difference between the red with surge save and the um, the the red with no surge save. Wow, hey man, so I gotta say, the plain boba, it doesn't feel like that. <laughs> yeah, it feels like it feels worse, doesn't it? Very much so. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> I was actually a little surprised by that finding when I did the. Um, when I did the Luke article, cause I ran it against, against the Boba numbers and I'm like, wow, it's, you know, attacking Boba with, with Luke's lightsaber is exactly the same as attacking Vader with Luke's lightsaber. Um, you know, if Vader doesn't have a dodge token. So yeah, it doesn't feel like that. Um, and I, I should, um, I need to run it with different Pierce values like Pierce one or Pierce three, you know, like if, for example, you're getting shot by a unit of fleets and you have Pierce one, that's a whole different story simply because, you know, that's a lot of dice being thrown at you and like the static variables are, are impacted differently um, when you're talking about different numbers of dice, but at least for Luke's lightsaber, it's the same. So like if you're doing Son of Skywalker against Boba, you should expect to do about the same versus him as you would versus Vader, which is um, not a lot actually. Point um, for those of you who are looking to get into competitive um, you know, what Orc is doing essentially is, um, you know, for lack of better words, quantitative analysis and sort of, um, you know, and we could do a whole podcast on this topic is just when you, when you go to be competitive, it is definitely worth your time to look into, um, articles and look into blogs talking about sort of like never tell me the odds talking about the, um, you know, mathematical breakdown of whatever units you choose to, to bring in your army to a game into a tournament, you kind of are able to, you know, using math, um, and, and this might scare people, you know, you, it's not that difficult, 
but um, you begin to know intuitively that certain units are better against certain other units. And, um, you know, math can help you understand that as well. And math can show you things about the game you wouldn't have otherwise known. Like, for example, I learned something. I didn't know that it was the same um, chance to wound Vader as it was to shoot, to, to wound Boba, essentially. I had no idea. So, you know, you can you can definitely learn a lot from doing the research. And that is something I suggest to everybody who's trying to get into competitive gaming uh, and competitive wargaming, and specifically competitive Legion. You know, look into that sort of stuff. That's really going to help you out in the long run. And that's this is a, not to get too far along this rabbit hole, but that's yeah. mostly that's useful when it comes to risk management. Um, and when you're when you're talking about risk management, it's all about knowing your outcomes, basically. So, like, if you have, you know, on any given turn, you have a roughly unlimited number of things that you can do, and you have to make decisions based on what you expect to happen when you do those things. And in a dice game, obviously, that that expectation is is not going to be 100 percent um, anytime dice are involved. So it helps to know basically what the probabilities of your outcomes are so that when you're choosing between two or more options, you know, um, obviously what the chances of the outcome you want are for each of those options. Awesome. So I guess to kind of, you know, begin to bring this segment on Boba Fett to a little bit of a close, um, um, we can talk about maybe what impact Boba has had in terms of list building and what, um, what other people are doing to sort of work around him. Um, what have you guys seen out there that people are starting to do to respond to Boba Fett or to build up around Boba Fett? Yeah, so um, I, I actually just casted a game uh, that was uh, for Invader League. Um, the There was a Boba in one of the lists. Um, Nikki Myland was uh, running Veers, Boba, uh, four Stormtrooper squads with DLTs, and three bikes. Um and he, he's he's run it to pretty good success in Invader. I think it, it might be a little bit more unorthodox as opposed to the other Veers Boba lists running around. Um, I I think the the main drawback to Boba is that you have to take a commander alongside him. Uh, it it kind of inflates his point. Co- like he's 140 points, but you still have to take a commander, right? So um, right now legally, I mean it's. The cheapest you can get them for is Veers plus Boba, which is like 220 or 230 or something like that. Um, and uh, it's, yeah, it's 220. So, um, and that's with no upgrades. So I, I think that when you're designing a list that incorporates Boba, you need to keep in mind the fact that uh, taking Boba is effectively putting you at a similar points value as like just taking Vader. But you gain this flexibility in trade. You get the you get the double courage bubble. You get six command cards because you have Boba's operative cards. Um, you get you do get more. I think for more bang for your buck. I think if you take Veer's Boba, at least that way. I mean, to some degree, I, I will say that you know in, in the game that I just watched, uh, there there are some serious drawbacks to to Boba's command cards. They uh, they only activate Boba, and if you've got a list with you know, more than eight activations, which most do, um, you, you know, you're putting yourself at a very real disadvantage if you're not able to like HQ uplink units or do something weird like that to, to give Boba his command cards, you are effectively giving up control over your army if it's not constructed correctly. Right. And just for some back, sorry, Ark, just for some background, HQ uplink is, um, an, an upgrade card, a comms upgrade, where you can have a unit issue an order to itself. It's exhaustible. It's 10 points. Go ahead, Org. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Yeah, and I was just going to say, you know, running Fierce Boba um, is not quite the same as running like a Wonder Twins list with, with two commanders because Boba doesn't give you another Courage Bubble and he doesn't give you the ability to issue orders to other units. So he's a lot less flexible than like a second commander would be. Um, I think Imperial players are definitely finding out that he's still worth it because uh, he's such a uh, impactful piece in general. Um, his command cards might only order himself, but each of them are amazing. You know, whipcord is great in a clutch situation where you need to immobilize a unit, which is not uh, something that anyone else can do right now. The flame projector is great at basically deleting a trooper unit. 
you're usually going to be throwing five or six red die plus plus your carbine or your or your boot spikes depending on what kind of situation you're in um and then that backpack rocket you know as as we already talked about is great for sniping a unit at range three with five dice that surge uh and you have pierce it's also great in a pinch against an armor target because it has impact too and bubble surges to crit so he's clearly a, a high impact unit but you know it's not quite the same uh kind of impact as you would have with or kind of flexibility i guess is a better word as you would have with with two commanders yeah i think that he could end up being i mean i think he's excellent right now i think once you know uh if imperials get maybe another more offensive versatile fast unit similar to like luke and you can kind of like pair them together um i'm sort of thinking like grand inquisitor-esque uh it could be a really insane combination of you know having like two Luke S characters on the board that have similar versatilities. Yeah, that would be pretty scary. Uh, I will say, I think part of the reason that Veers Bottle works so well is because Veers is very much a backfield commander, so he can sort of similar. You know, again, they're not both commanders, but sort of similar to a Wonders Twins list where you have like Leia kind of holding your backfield and Luke running around hacking stuff up. It's it's a similar dynamic in a Veer's bubble list. You have Veer's holding your your stuff together in the backfield and you have Bubba on the flanks threatening units, you know, roasting them with a flamethrower and, and, and sniping stuff behind cover. So I will say an interesting interaction I've found between them. It hasn't come up a ton, but when Veer's dies, you can just promote Boba. And all of a sudden, you've got a better courage value commander. <laughs> yeah, I, th- <laughs> I think that's almost like a discouragement to kill Veers in a Veers bubble list. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, frankly, it, it doesn't come up that often. But I mean, the difference between four and six suppression tokens is actually pretty substantial in some situations. Yeah, it's almost impossible to panic a boba. I mean, you need seven panic tokens, presuming he doesn't remove a suppression at the end of the round. It's really hard to get that kind on him unless you have a ton of suppressive weapons. And likewise, any other unit inside of his courage bubble. Yeah, although I think it is still useful to try and stack three to four suppression on him just because he doesn't, you know, unlike Luke or Vader, he doesn't have any keywords that allow him to make a free attack after moving. So if you can reduce him to one action, you know, he relies on his mobility so much, uh, you're going to be pretty significantly hampering him yeah and to that end uh the fact that he only gets two actions makes cards like hunter really good for him um he he generally can't waste an action aiming for the most part he needs to generally be like move shoot or shoot move and uh hunter really kind of gives him that like kind of pseudo third action in that he can move trigger hunter fire um in, in that regard and it's, it's worth noting, too, with Hunter, you know, Hunter just gives you an aim token when you target a, a unit that has a wound token. Um, you don't have to spend that aim token on that target. So Bubba has Arsenal, too. You know, this is especially true if you play one of his weapon cards. You can fire at a wounded unit to get your aim token, you know, and then if you're splitting fire, you can fire at a second unit and spend that aim token on the second unit, even if it's not the one that Hunter generated the aim token for. Yeah, and I also would like to point out, because he has Sharpshooter 2 and Arsenal 2, he's like one of the very few units in the game that it is fine to split fire into heavy cover with. Yeah, there's, you know, because you're not you're not doubling their cover bonus because they don't have a cover bonus. Right, um, and, and I found that, like, it, hey, if you need to put down some suppression tokens on some units, you can kind of do it with no no real drawback like you're still dealing the same amount of hits because you know you're not double covering at that point um which is really cool it's kind of a nuance to playing him so hunter don't leave home without it really don't because it's it's a fantastic card and it completely synergizes with what he's likely trying to do during the course of the game which is collect that bounty token which is that extra victory point if he can survive with it until the end of the game and that has definitely been a factor in a new number of games that I've played. Um, you know, people using bounty to manipulate what I'm trying to do, basically saying, if you risk this unit, I can gain a victory point if you lose it. So you can gamble and lose, and then I win when you when you lose. And uh, 
there's also been a, some talk lately about how you prevent bounty from being collected, especially in our Invader League games. We've seen some funny things where uh, folks will will deliberately run a unit off the board to keep that bounty token from being collected, or in my case, um, with uh, guardianing into fatal damage. You know, I would say, okay, fine, I'll guardian with my Chewy, and I'll just lose my Chewy rather than have Boba Fett pick up the bounty for me. Yeah, there are definitely ways to game it. Uh, and I think if you're a Boba player, the best way to look at bounty is it's a nice, great bonus victory point if you can set it up, but you definitely shouldn't count on it because there are lots of ways to deny it. And, you know, depending on what your bounty target is, obviously your opponent's going to try and protect that bounty target. Um, the other thing to note, too, is it's only one victory point. So depending on what objective you're playing on, uh, its impact could vary pretty widely like if you're on a low scoring objective or or an objective where the scores are often tied like moisture evaporators or key positions key positions right um you know which is usually two to one then it's pretty huge but if you're playing like intercepts where it's often like an eight four win because you're accumulating victory points the whole time and at the end of the game you know there's six victory points on the table then your bounty probably is not going to be as big of a deal doesn't mean it won't make the difference in a tie, but there are definitely some objectives where a tie is much more likely than others. It's worth saying returns will vary widely. It definitely is more valuable in a game that is close than in a game that is not close. Yes. 100%. Well, I think we have a lot more stuff to move on to, so we're going to have to move on from Boba Fett, but there is still so much more to say about him. We may revisit him in the future and possibly in other topics, but we do have another awesome segment coming up for you. This time about, um, well, we called it meta-analysis, but uh, let's first of all define what a meta is and what it means for you as a tournament player who is trying to succeed. Um, a, a definition of meta that we came up with, uh, when we say meta, it's short for meta game. That is, you know, things outside the game that influence what you're going to do in the game. And uh, a, a definition of meta would be what you, the player, expect the overall conditions to be like when it comes to uh, list composition, that is what other people are bringing to the tournament, and the terrain that is going to be played at that tournament, if you can scout the terrain beforehand and uh, know what that's going to be like. Um, part of winning in the tournament environment is creating a list that can deal with threats effectively and create answers to what your opposition could bring. And, um, you know, metas are largely individual. And when I say that you can have a so-called global meta, but there isn't a global pool of players. Most of the time you have a set of expectations generated by your local environment, and that will heavily influence how you decide to build your list. And it will also heavily influence um, what others bring in terms of their lists. And so you can have a, a strange kind of doubling effect where um, you think players are going to bring one list and you bring a list to counter your list, but then they bring things to counter the counter to that list. You end up in kind of a vicious circle. It's definitely prone to rabbit hole in for sure. Yeah, and I think in Legion you know, as, as opposed to some other games. Um, the units feel more balanced in general, with the exception of the poor T-47 and exhaust weapons. Yes. So I think there are generally most units can be useful in the right hands. So I think saying that there is any kind of, as you noted, global Legion meta um, is, you know, if anyone says they know what the global Legion meta is, they probably don't because... Like we saw last weekend with the Michigan GT, it was it was fairly armor heavy. Twelve of the twenty two lists all had armor, but in what we're familiar with, which is Invader League, three of the lists, three of the twenty four eliminations lists had armor. Uh, everybody pretty much dropped it. So just and that doesn't mean that those that are in Invader League are are right, and those that are in Michigan GT are wrong, or vice versa. It just means they're different. So if you're showing up to a tournament. And it's a local tournament. You hopefully you've been playing those same guys for a while, so you have some idea of of what sort of units you're going to encounter. But uh, 
if you're going to like a convention or something like that, like say LVO or Nova, it might be much more of a wild card. So you should just bring something that you think can uh, deal with any number of threats. At least that's the list that I, I tend to try and build. You can you can certainly try and build a SKU list. Like if you want to bring triple ATRTs with flamethrowers, that's totally fine. But you just have to sort of know what you're trying to accomplish with that list. How do you be- define a SKU list? Yeah, so I guess we should talk about that. There are basically two types of lists that you can make. There's like a SKU, and then there's there's a balance list, or what I like to call an all-comers list. Um, a SKU list basically means that you're trying to stack one particular type of threat and hope that it's so much that your opponent can't deal with it. So this, the sort of token SKU list would be SKU list would be three flamer RTs because your opponent might have enough impact to deal with one flamer ATRT, they might even have enough impact to deal with two. But if you throw three flamer ATRTs at them, then your hope is that they're gonna they're gonna have problems dealing with that. You could also do, you know, armor is not the only type of skew, but it's probably the clearest example because it, impact is a thing either that you have or you don't in sufficient quantity. I would say uh, like Thomas's list from in Invader League is is a good example of a skew list. He brought two T-47s and a flame ATRT, so he was basically counting on his opponent to not have enough impact. And as you can see, uh, you know, Cha- him and him and uh, Chaplin played a game this past week, um, and I don't want to give any spoilers, but but let's just say that even in a skew list, if your stuff that you bring is uncontested, you can still lose because it's an objective-based game. So, um, and then a balanced list is just. Essentially, you're, you're trying to cover all your bases, and your army's not going to be exceptionally good at any one thing, uh, but you're hoping that you know, you're know you going to be able to play... If, if you play it smart and tight, you're, you're going to be able to deal with just about anything, in, including, hopefully, a, a skew list. Yeah, so... I mean, I, I think I agree with all of that. Um, I, would, I would like to... You know, we're talking about metas and uh, kind of like what players should think about them. I, I think a really good thing to keep in mind is that um, metas are more of an idea than real, in, in, at least to me. Uh, they're kind of like, you know, predicting the out, outcome of an election, right? Like we we think these things are going to happen. The statistical data says that they probably should happen, but that that doesn't mean that it's going to happen. And, you know, 20% of the time, the meta predictions are going to be wrong. And if you think the meta predictions are going to be, you know, skewless and you bring stuff, you know, you need to be prepared for the fact that you can just get it wrong. This is kind of, it's part of, part of the deal. 60% of the time it works. Exactly. That's an excellent point overall. Um, if you're building a list for a tournament, uh, and this goes back to the idea of research, um, you're going to want to, get some sense of you know what's popular currently and how that might affect you and, and i guess the to get put it even at an even more like generic level um you know or if you're talking about skew lists where i'm going to bring three flamer atrts so my list is going to make a threat that says if you can't deal with my threat, I'm going to have a serious advantage over you or a big advantage over you going into the middle part of the game or so. And when you have an all comers list, you say, I have some answers for this threat that you present to me and I'm able to blunt the threat sufficiently to overcome you through, um, I guess what you could call standard play or good play, quote unquote, rather than, you know, falling into the trap that's being set for you by the skew list. Yeah. And I don't know that either of those approaches are necessarily right or wrong. I mean, you look just last weekend at the Michigan GT, um, Rick Stegich had an excellent example of a skew list. You know, he had three sabs and a bunch of troopers and Luke and Han and his strategy was basically, I'm going to win the bid. I got a 20 point bid. We're going to use my objective deck. Come at me, bro. Uh, and it worked. <laughs> so you know, I think if you were going to look at that list on paper, you'd be like, what is this guy doing? But then you line up against, you know, opposite the table and he starts shuffling his objective deck and you're looking at his three sabs and you're looking at the terrain and you're like, 
hmm, this looks difficult. Yeah, I think that that's a good point, bringing up like that list specifically. You know, um, it in this game, the meta is more than just the units. The meta is also what you are expecting other players to bid. What what the objective decks you're gonna think people are gonna bring are like right now. We're gonna talk about this later. You know, it's pretty clear that there is a some sort of meta shaping up in most pools uh, that account for a pretty high bid for key positions. And for yeah. those of us unaware of the history, the 20-point bid is like on the extreme end of the scale. It's like new territory. Like you don't usually see 20-point bid lists at tournaments. You see, it used to be like you'd see five and then nova happened and it was like 15 was like a shocking thing and now we've got 20. yeah i think that's probably the biggest one i've seen so far in a tournament yeah uh it's it's good too to talk about the terrain as part of a meta like again contrasting conventions nova and gen con had very sparse terrain and and michigan gt had fairly dense terrain and i think a lot of people including the aforementioned sad player anticipated dense terrain and i talked to rick last weekend and he even said i put together this sad list i showed up the night before to check out the terrain to make sure it's what i thought it was going to be and it looked dense so i felt pretty good so it's one of those things that you should think about like if you're going to uh adepticon the first question i'm going to have is is ffg expected to use the same set of terrain that they used at nova and gen con and if so then you need to make decisions about what sorts of units you're going to bring if that's your expectation so it's worth trying to figure out those things in advance if you can it's not always possible but there, there are tools to do that and uh, you should try and figure out what the expectation is going to be before you show up to an event yeah i think that there you know this is again a little bit tangential but the idea of scouting what you're going to be dealing with is um an interesting concept that i think for games like this will end up developing like should you bring you know uh you like an army that is you know based on you know dense terrain and an army that is based on not dense terrain to a tournament and when you show up look at the terrain and register what you think is more reasonable that's clearly maybe a little excessive but i don't know it's some a thought that i think is worth thinking about knowledge is power there is no doubt about that especially yeah, I think if, if you're, you're trying to be competitive sorry go ahead <laughs> no i was just gonna say i think if you're in that example showing up and lists aren't due by a certain time you know i i think it's i think it's legit to look at the terrain and decide what you want to do make a last minute change you know if you have to so we have here in the show notes that we, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the faction balance in the Invader League. Um, last season, it was heavily favored towards the Empire, but that didn't ultimately pan out in the final results. Um, I guess we're, we're thinking about this as important, um, not only because we're concerned with you know, the potential balance of the game, but we're also concerned a little bit with meta and what should I expect people to be running and are they going to largely run Imperial and how do I handle that? Or are they largely going to run rebel and how do I handle that? That's all part of the larger picture. So, um, last season in invader league season one, which was run about six months ago, um, there were very few rebels and it turned out that those four rebel players were the top four placings in the uh, single elimination tournament. So it didn't really matter as much what faction you picked, I think, because there was no correlation between faction selection and placement. Um, now in this season, uh, we're seeing that uh, this trend continue because the eliminations are very evenly split. And there was also a fairly even, I mean, it, it says dominated, but really it's only what, 20% more, if that? Um, rebels than Imperials in the round robin phase, just in terms of entrance. Uh, there was actually more Imperials than Rebels in. Round oh, really? Robin. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay, so this is backwards. Yeah, slightly. I mean, it was thirteen uh, Rebels and eleven Imperials 
in elims. So that's not like, it, you know, one more Imperial win would have been an even split. But I think, too, you're seeing, uh, obviously, Kingsley upended the, this theory today by beating Nicky Milan, but so far in the cross-faction matches, you've seen more Imperial wins than, than Rebel wins. So um, I think once snipers are in the picture, that, that Veer's Baba list starts looking a lot better. Yeah, I mean, I, I think overall um, Imperials have kind of, I'm not going to say gain the upper hand, but I think we're we're kind of on the same even playing field, um, at least in most people's eyes. I still believe that Darth Vader is way higher than everything else, but that's something else altogether. Um, <laughs> but but I do think that you know the the introduction of of Boba and snipers um, and you know down the road Royal Guard will you know heavily impact like you're not gonna be just playing against wonder twins every game uh that was kind of like a meta you know four months ago that you could count on and i don't think it is anymore yeah you're going to be seeing a lot more variety here i think in the near future will which will be great for the game yeah we've got that uh fd turret and the e-web turret coming out in about five days so that's already going to uh, make an impact on the real world table games yeah, and or real sure- life games i guess Shortly after that, hopefully we'll see Palpatine and Royal Guard. That's going to be a scary prospect facing down Palpatine, and we'll leave. We'll even know what his two pip does. We'll finally know. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very interested to know what it is, but I am more interested and more excited about playing Imperial Guard next to Vader. I I'm really enthusiastic about it. <laughs> Last point on that: pulling the strings is amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's excellent. I, I mean, we're gonna talk about this, I think, way down the road. But it's especially good with units that have a very long range. Yeah, so look, so look out for that when Palpatine comes out or in, in uh, November or so. All right, so I think that wraps up what we're gonna talk about in terms of just uh, meta analysis for now. But this is definitely a subject that could be explored even further in depth in the future. But we are beginning to run out of time for our last segment, which is going to be talking about Legion fundamentals. Um, also known in other circles as mechanics, that is the physical activities of playing the game, things like measuring range, putting units in cohesion, and activating your units in order, and just recognizing decisions that need to be made. And uh, Orchimedes um, and Dashes, there's an article on your blog recently that talked about this uh, very thing when it comes to cohesion. Do you want to talk a little bit about what's in that article and uh, how people can improve their their practices when it comes to cohering units on the field yeah when i when i first started playing legion i looked at this movement mechanic with the cohesion and i'm like hey this is really neat you know they're saving you some time you just have to move one mini and then you pick up all the other dudes and and you you drop them down next to next to your leader and you're good uh it's a time saving thing but the more you play the more you realize how many rules interact with each mini in a unit and how important it is to carefully place each of those minis in addition to the unit leader. So I I won't get too in depth because it's, uh, the article itself is pretty in depth, but there's a number of different important rules interactions that deal with minis, mini placement specifically. And you should pretty much be aware of all of them as, as you're placing your stuff. Um, the two that, that I think we can hit real quickly, just because they're so important is cover and then wound allocation. So uh, the first one with cover is if half your minis are in cover based on the cover rules, which we could spend a whole episode on. But basically, if if half your minis are in cover, then the whole unit benefits from cover. So if, for example, you're you're going up to a barricade and you can't quite make it to that barricade with your unit leader, uh, but you want to benefit from cover, you can use that cohesion move to swing your remaining three or four minis, however many are, are left alive at that point behind the barricade. And then you've got cover from the front of your barricade, even though the unit leader couldn't get there. So it's it's also a good idea to do that just because, and this is also another example in the article, but because of how difficult terrain r- rules work, basically as long as you're not uh, moving like into or out of area terrain, as long as your unit leader doesn't cross difficult terrain, then you're not slowed. So you can like move up to a barricade put your unit leader to one side of it and then swing your units, your, your other minis behind it. 
And then when you move out in front of that barricade, you can essentially move out unimpeded because it's not in front of your unit leader and you still get still get the cover. Back I would like it. to caveat that with if your units, your your other guys are moving out of area terrain, they will be slowed down. Right. Yeah. And if if any minis are, are being dropped in area terrain or moving out of it, then then you do get slowed down. But with linear things like barricades, you can definitely sort of abuse that to get around the difficult terrain. The other one is wound allocation. Um, th there's a there's a term I like to call terrain scoping. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's a big deal. Uh, but basically, it is a big deal. It's a big um, deal. That, so the underlying rule here that's important is that wounds can only be allocated to minis that the target unit can see. So... For example, if you have Leia uh, and she's doing her bombardment and she's targeting the Z6 squad and the only guy she can see in that unit is the guy holding the Z6, if she scores a wound, then even though there's five dudes in that unit, you've got to pick up the Z6 guy. So um, good players will use, will use this intentionally to set up shots where they can essentially snipe heavy weapons minis out of units before the rest of the unit is dead. So... The implication here is that you should basically just get in the habit whenever you move or when you deploy, just always put your important dudes, most of the time it's a heavy weapon mini, in the middle of your unit. Make sure there's other guys on either side of them. Even if they're not like directly behind the terrain piece, there's usually enough line of sight blocking terrain on the board, especially with unlimited range weapons like Bombardment, to basically set up a shot where you can catch a heavy weapons unit on the edge of a terrain piece so that you can only see that unit. And obviously, like you see this most, no question, with bombardments, and especially with Leia, since she has sharp or two, she doesn't care at all about cover. So even though that unit, you know, she can only see one mini, even though that unit is getting heavy cover, uh, she doesn't care. She'll just she'll still throw those two red dice and get two hits probably, and then you're going to roll two white dice, and you're probably not going to roll paint on both dice, and your Z6 guy is going to die before he has a chance to do anything. So. Just get in the habit, like, every single time you move and when you deploy your units of dropping your heavy weapons guy in the middle of your unit. Would you say most of these situations arise from an error in coherence, like an error in in, play, in placement from, you mean, from the opponent? Like, the, the opportunity to score these individual hits on heavy weapon troopers. Yeah, I would say that's one of those things. And the, the reason I'm, you know, it's so important to stress this is it's one of those things that's almost entirely preventable. Now, if you you know if you've got like one guy to the right and one guy to the left of your of your Z6 and some other unit shoots them and you take extra casualties and then suddenly your Z6 guy is exposed, then then maybe there's nothing you can do. But generally, this is terrain scoping heavy weapons out of units is one of those things that is almost entirely preventable by getting in in the good habit of just throwing them in the middle of your of your dudes. That is kind of what this segment is about: um, cultivating these good habits in uh, what you do with the physical pieces of the game, what you do with the movement tool, what you do with your individual miniatures. And I, I think Dash has got something to say as, as well. Yeah, so, um, you know, you were, you were talking about taking casualties, and I, that's also something where we're talking about terrain, terrain scope in here specifically. Uh, make sure that when you take casualties, you're not giving your opponent kind of the opportunity to, to terrain scope you. Like you, you can choose which models to remove most of the time and don't, you know, when you're taking casualties, if you can help it, don't leave your Z6, you know, out there is the, you know, right hand model around the, the, the corner. Otherwise it, he'll get terrain scoped. Sometimes people will shoot at you specifically for you to take casualties for you to remove units and open up those opportunities. Yeah, there's also just the core rule here being the units that can't be seen, can't be allocated wounds. There's also ways to abuse that with multi-wound models in units, but we can talk about that more once Wookiees come out. Yes, well, absolutely. Wookiees are definitely ripe for that since each uh, model has three wounds in the unit. And so if you add that bowcaster, it's going to be 12 wounds of models. It's going to be so crucial to... Um, assign the wounds correctly to keep those models around as long as possible and using using your coherence your your, your cohesion bubble the the radius of cohesion to place the units just so that you can pass wounds onto the correct model it's really intricate and really um 
uh, time consuming possibly, and that could hurt you in a tournament setting. But I think ultimately it's worth uh, learning how to do and learning how to do it quickly. And that just comes with practice more than anything else. Yeah. And I think for me, when I finally turned the corner on cohesion is um, just when I started looking at moving as like, say you have a trooper unit, they move speed too. So it's, I started thinking of it as a speed two move movement for your unit leader. And then after that, a free speed one movement for every other mini. So it makes you just think more intentionally about the placement of those minis instead of just kind of dropping them near your unit leader. You're like, Hey, I have, you know, I've got a unit with, I've got a Z6 unit with, with five minis in it. I've, I've moved my one unit leader and now I've got four more speed one moves that I can make. Yeah. I, I will say that this is one of the hardest things I think about like the fundamentals of Legion overall is, is just getting this right. You're not going to get it right completely for your first 30 games, probably. Yeah. It takes a lot of practice and that's really the, for any of these sort of fundamentals uh, bits that we do, I think the core piece of device is just get games in because, you know, each of us certainly made all of these mistakes. The first, the first 10 times we played Legion. Um, Absolutely. You know, you, you learn from your mistakes. The reason I stressed the terrain scoping thing so much is because I got terrain scoped. So, you know, once that happens to you, then hopefully it doesn't happen to you again or, it, you know, not, not without your say anyway. The first time it happens yeah. to you, it feels dirty if it hasn't happened to you already. It, it almost yeah. feels illegal. <laughs> like when, when it happens to you, but then you realize it's completely within the rules to have it done. So. So um, following on with some of these um, cohesion best practices and, and a couple of this uh, kind of goes in a little bit to planning ahead, which is kind of more of a meta thing. But uh, when you do put things in cohesion, you have to plan ahead a little bit. And there's two main uh, subheadings to this has has um, one of them is um, that you need to consider uh, present and future angles of attack. So what I mean by that is you have to look at the board state and say what hasn't activated yet what could potentially fire at my unit next in the next, you know, few moments in terms of like what, whatever my opponent pulls from his uh, order pool or her order pool, um, or what is, you know, showing the face up token. What is it? What is left that could attack my unit? How am I going to make sure I get heavy cover from that attacking unit? And then of course there's the issue of putting units. Um, I'm going to say forward of their unit leader. What I mean is you cohering your guys toward your opponent because of the way range works, um, if any part or any part of any of those miniatures in that unit is within the range band from the unit leader that lets that unit, you know, shoot you, you know, cohering your your miniatures toward your enemy just makes it easier for them to shoot you. And so you need to have a really good reason for doing that. And usually those reasons are I'm going to get behind a piece of line of sight blocking terrain or I'm going to get heavy cover if I do this they were going to shoot me anyway. Yeah, I, I agree. I think those are the two the two most common reasons to go here forward. But as a general rule of thumb, uh, you should not be cohering forward unless you've really taken a step back, taken you know 15 seconds to think about it, and then been like, okay, I should go here forward. Uh, it's, it's really giving your opponent a range advantage. Uh, it, for the duration of the turn up until the point that you move that that squad again and it, it's not worth it most of the time and uh, going further along this route of planning ahead uh, we can always talk about range measurement and a couple of subheadings on this would be um, pre-measuring you are allowed to measure with your range ruler at any time so if you have a range question uh, get in there and do it there's especially if you're newer and learning the only way you're going to gain the knowledge is by actually doing it. So, so measure always, even if you think you're going to tip your hand to your opponent about what you might like to do in the next few moments, um, just do it. But when you get to a tournament, um, take the time to do it early, you know, say, okay, well, is this barricade range three from that barricade for, to give a very, very basic example of this. But, um, you know, knowing how far a unit can go on a single activation at a certain speed you know, supremely important knowing what the threat range of a, uh, a DLT looks like after the Imperial stormtroopers make a speed to move. That's relatively full distance. 
you know, knowing where things can go and what places they can threaten is totally fundamental to what you're trying to do as a, a someone who's learning to play in the tournament environment. So always pre-measure and, and always measure distance and just take a few moments to go around the board and say, okay, well, that's range two from that. And that's range one from that costs you nothing. Yeah. Maybe 10 always seconds. Be measuring. Ex- so like exactly. Always be like always be closing. <laughs> always be measuring. Exactly. Always be measuring. Coffee is for pre-measurers. <laughs> yep. A set of steak knives. If you, if you pre-measure. Exactly. Um, it, it's helpful too, since you can't use the movement tool all the time to know where that thing matches up on the range ruler. Um, and if there's one rule of thumb, you sh- you should know. Obviously, it's that a range two move is roughly equal to range one, or rather, a speed two move. So, for example, like Luke's charge distance is just a little bit shy of range two because he's got two speed two moves. Uh, or, you know, if you've got a, a Rebel Z six squad. Uh, their threat range, if they have both actions, is roughly equal to range four because that's one speed two move plus range three. So, this is a really good one for you, Orc. What's this? What's the total distance of range one plus two speed one moves? Uh, so like snowtroopers. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, it's it's just uh it's two two speed one moves is is what eight inches. So yeah, that's actually inches. exactly equal to a speed three move. So that'd be 14 inches, which is about two inches past range two. Um, if you actually, uh, just a quick plug for Never Tell Me the Odds, if you look on the unit guides page uh, for each unit that has basically important ranges like that, uh, we actually take a photo like of the range ruler that's on a paper that's marked up with all those ranges. So like if you go to the Snow Triple article, you'll, you'll see a photo in there of the range ruler and it's marked up with what what is what is that two speed one moves plus a range one um or if you go to the vader article it's you know with his two pip uh the uh new ways to motivate them what's the distance that you can get three speed one moves and a range one because that's a snow trooper's new rate new ways to motivate them threat range so it's helpful to know all of those distances uh even if you know them roughly then you can obviously just be conservative and stay outside of that um but whenever you're you're moving units, you should know basically what they're going to be threatened by. And, and a key piece of that is just always be measuring. We're going to have to quickly go through our last point, which is uh, activation order. How do you know what units to activate? What are some rules of thumb that you could use to determine your activation order? Um, I'm going to start by just saying you have to kind of have you cognizant of um, threats. Let's like what what bad thing could happen to me if I don't activate this unit? And um, bonuses, what good thing do I want to happen if I activate this unit later or sooner? I think that's a pretty good starting point to know uh, how, sort of how to play, kind of. I think a, a really, like, where you should probably start uh, is generally, you know, which units can you afford to, uh, or rather, which units you can't afford to lose actions on in a given turn. Like, if there is, like, clearly, apparently a unit that is going to be suppressed and lose an action due to it, you know, how, how does that affect the rest of the turn? You know, if, if you have a squad of, you know, rebel troopers that once they're suppressed can no longer move and shoot, they can just do one of the two and they're like not in range of an enemy. They're getting shot by like a DLT or something um, or a sniper or something to that effect. You need to, you need to gauge where in the turn order the acceptable risk of losing that action is. Yeah, I kind of like to separate my units on a given turn into into buckets. Um, I like to think that there's basically proactive units, reactive units, and then there's units where you don't care when they activate. So, you know, stalling units, basically. Um, so proactive units are going to be like those ones that you just talked about where the effectiveness of their activation can be severely impacted if they don't go early in the turn. Um, there could be units too, like a flame ATRT in range of a target where... You know, you want to activate them as quickly as possible because they're in a position to do a lot of damage. Or they could also be, you know, a vulnerable unit. Like if you've got Boba Fett in melee with Luke, you probably want to play Whipboard Launcher so that he can get out of there and go first. Um, and then reactive units are basically just all of the the other units that, uh, you know, they might be in compared to their, their comrades in a reasonably safe location and they can kind of react to what your opponent's doing. Um, and then you're in the middle there. The, the stall units are the ones 
where they're going to be able to do what a, the thing that you want them to do, uh, generally speaking, regardless of what your opponent does. Um, so, for example, if you've got like an objective capping unit near a safe box on the opposite end of the map and there's no enemy units that can reach them, when you're in that portion of your turn where you're transitioning from proactive to reactive units, you can activate that unit basically to stall for an activation. Um, it's it's notable too that the the that stall unit category can change over the course of a turn. So like, if you have a unit on one part of the board that's only threatened by one enemy unit, and then that one enemy unit activates, uh, then that unit has that you have has now become a stall unit because you know the one threat to them already went and is no longer a threat to them. So yeah, I think a really good example of kind of like transferring that is like speeder bikes. I think they're a really good case of this in which like on turn one they're generally kind of in the reactive unit category and that you really don't they want to be like the last things activating because you want to be able to keep them out of range of whatever's shooting them right and then on turn two they turn into like proactive units or they might still be reactive units and then on turn three they transition into proactive units where they like want to be the first things going to like fire their cannons and then dodge behind a building or something um, and they they tend to switch back and forth a lot in that regard the most vulnerable units on any given turn want to go first usually because if they are in fact in danger of dying, which means their combat effectiveness will be zero because they're dead, they have to go really early before they get killed. And that's kind of like the most like bare bones example of this, uh, you know, reactive proactive dichotomy we're talking about. Yeah, generally speaking, you know, that's a great shorthand rule of thumb: is is proactive units are vulnerable and reactive units tend to be safe, so or relatively yeah. safe. So, you know, this kind of the larger the larger subject is kind of like, you know, what has to happen in this turn? Uh, do I need Leia to go early so she can put dodges on things? Do I need Veers to go early so he can put aims on things before my other units go so they can shoot with an aim and then move if they need to? Um, should my Z6 trooper shoot a bike before it activates to reduce its combat effectiveness? Should I move Luke first so he can get away from a dangerous situation? those all kind of fall into the larger kind of idea that there's a certain amount set of tasks that have to be done in the sort of uh, carrying out of your battle plan, so to speak. And, and something that goes hand in hand with that, and we could spend a ton of time on this too, but is activation control, which is basically how you gain control over that timing. Um, and this is, this starts with list building. And this is why you see so many competitive lists that have a ton of core units in them is because if, if you're stacking one particular type of token, then when you're handing out orders, you just need to give those orders to the other non-core units that you have, and you have a, a much better chance of being able to activate each unit when you want to. You know that if you're going to go to your bag, odds are that you're going to draw a core unit, and if you're you know, going with a face-up order token, then you're going to know exactly what unit you're activating. So that's kind of, if, if you're making a list that have lots of different types of units in it, that's kind of a drawback of that list is you're giving up activation control. Whereas if you see a lot of these lists that have like five, six core units in them, the reason they do that is, is because you, you're essentially making your bag, your, your core unit order token, and then you're making your other order tokens, whatever you're, you're handing out with your pips. So there are cards that mitigate this uh, idea of, uh, you know, losing control of your activation order cards, like improvised orders, cards like HQ uplink things that, that you know are you know uh forcing or delaying you know i guess hq uplink is proactive because you're assigning orders rapidly and then you know you can just go whenever or you have you know reactive which is improvised orders oh i drew the wrong token let me try for another one see if i get a different type then i can put one back and pick the one i want yeah and that improvised orders is interesting too because it I've seen people like fish for a particular token with improvised orders. And I think you're almost always better using it. Like you mentioned, you know, I pulled a token I don't want and I need to throw it back. Yeah. I don't think you should be using improvised orders generally. Like if you've got a bag full of five troopers and one spec ops and you draw a trooper and you really want the spec ops, like you shouldn't use it to fish in that, in that situation. Well, all right. We are approaching the end of our time. So um, any last thoughts from either of you about activation before we wrap up the show? It's important. 
<laughs> yeah, it's really important. It's one of those. It's it's, a, it's in fact fundamental to playing good Legion. Always be all the hard hit, indeed. All the hard hitting analysis right here, yes. folks. <laughs> right here. <laughs> all right. I think that means it's time to wrap up the show. So. Uh, um, yeah, I want to go to crate. Oh, we're not, yeah, I want to oh, go to crate. Positions. Yes. You wanted to go to the salt mines. No, so we, we can think, do it next time. This time would be, would be excellent. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm going to pass on the salt. I don't want to head into the salt mines <laughs> with y'all right now. Uh, if you if you guys are wondering, um, I lost a game on key positions recently, and, and we'll tell you all about that in our next episode um, about why uh, certain things may need to be changed in the near future about this particular objective and uh, how you as a player can handle uh, the objective in questions. And that is, uh, so basically look out next time for uh, tips on dealing with key positions as red, because man, is it a bummer when it happens to you. Okay. So we're going to wrap up the show. A uh, huge thanks to um, Dashes and Archimedes for never telling me the odds. I'm, my name is Endless. I write at Yavin Base. Uh, check out our sites, swlegionodds.com for never telling me the odds, yavinbase.wordpress.com for uh my site yavin base and uh please check out the fifth trooper podcast which is uh the part of the network we're part of their sort of the flagship podcast of the network we're featured on check them out uh they came out with a new episode recently so they'll be worth your time to listen to um thanks again for listening to us and um for notorious scoundrels my name is endless i'm dash and i'm Archimedes. and we'll see you all next time or bring talk your to you all. salt mine suits we're going digging Join us next time for another edition of the Notorious Scoundrels podcast. This has been a Fifth Trooper production.